Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Alan Rabinowitz, Chief Scientist of Panthera, the global wildcat conservation organization. Dr. Rabinowitz has been dubbed by Time magazine the Indiana Jones of conservation, although as you'll hear, that's not how he'd like to be remembered. He has been instrumental in the creation of some of the world's largest protected zones for big cats, as well as writing a dozen or so books documenting his work and adventures. We talk about his childhood love of big cats. He explains his views on the links between apex predators and diseases like SARS and Ebola. And he talks about his new project, Journey of the Jaguar, travelling down the spine of the Jaguar's range across two continents and through 18 countries. He's done all this and so much more whilst having overcome a severe stutter as a child and despite a diagnosis with leukaemia in 2002. He is one of the world's leading conservationists and it was a huge privilege to speak to him. And of course, this is a conversation for the Wild Voices Project podcast, which tells the stories of the people saving nature. We are part of Wild Voices Media, a global production team bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals. Find out more about us at wildvoicesproject.org and learn more about the global community at wild-voices.org. Hey, you solved it. I did, just somehow. Hey. <laughs> I'm not nice. quite sure how, but I did. <laughs> yeah, right, there, we got it, okay. <laughs> you press enough buttons and I guess you get it eventually. Right, sorry for the faff. <laughs> no problem, I'm, I'm learning as well. Okay, thanks. Well, um, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me and for taking the first 10 minutes to source out the, the technology. <laughs> um, and have you got an hour in total? Uh, yeah, we could do till one ten. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, so two other very quick technical questions. Um, if you've got a mobile phone near you, if, if you can just move it away or make sure it's on flight mode or whatever, just because it can sometimes cause interference. Um, okay. And uh, have you got any questions for me before we start? No, since I have no idea what, what you're planning on asking me. <laughs> well, um, maybe I'll just give you a very quick bit of background. So this is for the Wild Voices Project podcast, which is um, something that I run um, myself. I'm based in the UK, and I tend to talk to people who are, quote-unquote, uh, people who are saving nature in some way um, and try to tell their stories. And I was quite inspired in this by um, Krista Tippett and the On Being podcast. Yeah, that got a lot of a lot of coverage. Yeah, and um, yeah, that was how I actually first came across you. I was living in Borneo in the rainforest about uh, three and a half years ago, and was listening to a lot of podcasts while I was out there. And <laughs> yours was one of the ones that I listened to. Huh. Where were you in Borneo? Uh, so I was just outside Palankaraya in central Kalimantan, yeah. in the Sabangau rainforest. Yeah, yeah. in the center of the world. <laughs> yeah, in a pretty amazing place. So uh, yeah, I did a lot of reading of people like Paul Rosalie and listening to podcasts by you and yeah, getting, getting kind of inspired about stuff while I was out there as well at the same time. What were you working on? So I was working for a small um, research and conservation organization called, well, it's now called the Borneo Nature Foundation. They mostly search for and follow primates, so red langers, agile gibbons, and Borneo orangutans. And I was helping with some of the kind of follow work in the forest, but also doing some of their communications work for them as well. Okay. Yeah, it was a pretty amazing year. Yeah, I worked in Sabah and Sarawak but not in Kalimantan. Right, further in the north of the country. Yeah, we were doing we were doing rhino surveys uh, in in Sarawak right. and in Sabah I was working on clouded leopards and trying to train the train the government which didn't go too well. 
Yeah, one of the um, one of the most amazing moments during the year I was out there was um, we had a clouded leopard come into camp that had clearly been kept as someone's pet and then released when it got too big and it came and kind of feasted on whatever it could find in the kitchen. Huh. And we had to get the local wildlife service to come and take it away for a couple of months and teach it how to hunt and then re-release it back into the wild. But yeah, it was pretty amazing to see one sort of wandering around our camp. That is amazing. Yeah. I never heard I've never heard of a domesticated one. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, that's what they figured must have happened. Um Yeah, so that's that's a little bit where my kind of inspiration for the podcast came from is from listening to Krista Tippett and the On Being podcast and from a few other places as well. Um so the idea really is is just to kind of have a bit of a conversation over the next hour or so. Um and to kick off where I usually kick off, which is by asking what role nature and wildlife played for you as a child and growing up. Well, I grew up in New York City, so it probably wasn't your typical your typical childhood where it seems like a natural thing that I ended up spending most of my life and time in the forest. Uh my my attraction towards nature mostly came by the fact that I was born with a severe stutter and I couldn't speak. I had what was called frozen mouth by most speech pathologists at the time. And they didn't they didn't quite know how to deal with stutterers, just as they didn't know how didn't even know about dyslexia or ADHD or any of those things back then. So the New York City school system just put anybody who wasn't normal into these special classes, which of course the kids would make fun of as the retarded classes. And it turns out that as as with most stutterers, the things that stutterers can do is sing because of the airflow it creates and they can talk to animals because of the psychological walls that drop down of of being nervous about what people ex- what human beings expect of you or people waiting or making faces and there's no expectation with the animals yeah. so my attraction towards nature came with first having just little pets i could speak to because i would be all day in these special classes in school which basically we were considered broken by the adults and then i would go home and go into my closet because i felt safe in the dark and i would play with a green turtle or a lizard or a garter snake sometimes all of them i would have and i would talk to them they were my world they were the ones i could tell my feelings and tell how the day went and tell my dreams to so my father my parents realized this and and they would often my father would see when i was having really bad days or bad weeks at school by the amount of times he or my mother were called into the principal's office for fights because i wouldn't let people make fun of me if they made fun of me i was i was always in some kind of altercation and I'd end up with the principal so my father would take me to the bronx zoo and he knew that the one place i was attracted to the most at the bronx zoo for whatever reason he didn't understand was the big cat house was the great cats and it was a typical zoo back then it was just bare cages with cage after cage of cats the smell and the roaring and the sounds and the reason i was most attracted to the big cats was because as soon as i would be there i they were me walking into the into the cat house at the bronx zoo was like going inside of my own head these huge strong animals which were normal which could tear down a human being easily they were locked inside of cages by human beings they were they were not able to live a normal life and the only reason was as as i saw it as a child and i still see it really is because they didn't have a human voice they could communicate among themselves but they didn't have a human voice and if they had a human voice i doubt people could or even would today keep them keep them in captivity the way we do so that was me i didn't people 
I was actually very smart. I always got straight A's. I, I, I knew what I was doing all the time in school, but I was considered stupid or broken or, or not normal because I didn't have the normal human voice. So I was attracted by, since my earliest childhood, my greatest calm, even growing up in the city, were with animals. That's who I bonded with. That's what I bonded with. Mm. And I made a promise, though I didn't know even what I was saying at the time. When I was a kid, every time I'd go to the cat house, I'd promise. I'd, I would usually go to the jaguar, but I sometimes went to the tiger, sometimes the snow leopard. And I would say that if I ever got my voice, I would try to get them out of there. I would try, try to be their voice. And it's not so, so much that that promise drove me as much as just realizing that people and animals that don't have typical voices need to be heard in this world and they're often not so i wanted to spend my life somehow once i once i actually got my voice through through therapy and training and i mean i'm still a stutterer but i've learned how to control it and once i got my voice i wanted to help people or animals or both that didn't have a voice. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about, um, so it's interesting that you mentioned getting dragged into the principal's office. The last um, the last person who I, who I spoke to for this podcast, Paul Rosalie, who now runs a lodge in the Peruvian Amazon, also had a really difficult time with the education system and, again, like, changed schools lots of times. And it feels like there's a bit of a common theme of the education system failing kids who maybe aren't set up for the kind of, you know, the very narrow definition of education that we have and also failing to connect kids properly with nature and wildlife as well. Oh, that's very true. There was no connection with nature and wildlife. Uh, totally the opposite. Um, we were encouraged to cut apart animals. We were, I mean, that was that was part of our education. But the but the education system, what just was very keyed in on mainstreaming everybody in an efficient way. Even when my parents would go and appeal the fact that I was smart, I was intelligent, I knew what was going on. The excuse was, which I actually considered valid in some ways, the excuse was that I disrupted the entire class because. Either I couldn't be called on, or if I was called on, I would take 20 minutes or half an hour to express a single thought. Uh, so it disrupted everything. It disrupted the whole teaching schedule. I never felt angry. In, in fact, I never disliked the teachers or felt angry at them. I actually thought that they were somewhat justified because, because I couldn't talk. But I felt I felt angry or cheated that they didn't try to understand what was beyond my not being able to talk, that they just, that they immediately assumed that I was broken or stupid, or some even assumed I was too smart and thought too fast for the, for the words. Uh, they just made assumptions, just like we make assumptions about animals, yeah. how, how an animal feels or doesn't feel. When it's bogus, we don't know, we, it's, a, it's a completely different world. And the more I ended up working with animals and wildlife, the more I realized they're not, they're not below us. They're not above us. They're, not, they're, they're on a different level. They're on a different plane. People, people don't seem to understand this. Part of why people treat wildlife so poorly is not only because they don't have, have a voice, but it's... it's it's this man manifestation of what I think originated with the Judeo-Christian uh, policies that, that there was a, a chain of being, a chain of life mm. with man at the top and everything else below. Uh, and that's, that's persisted. It's actually, it actually runs through other religions as well. And it's persisted in the human psyche that somehow because we have better weapons because we dominate that we're smarter or we're, we're above other things. 
And I think that's part of our downfall. I think the more we learn that's not true, the better we can live a life as human beings. And it's also to do with lived experience as well, right? A lot of people's experience of animals might be either pets or the food that they eat, as opposed to, you know, in your case, as you say, you, you had a lived experience of feeling, you know, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I suppose feeling trapped or, or not feeling in control of something, and that helped you to relate to the feelings that, or the experience that the animals in the zoo might be having. Whereas for a lot of people, they don't necessarily have that lived experience to be able to, I don't know, have, have the empathy, maybe. No, no, I agree. I think even with people, I think the, the idea of pets, and I have a pet. I've got a dog. In fact, it's laying right by me right, right now, <laughs> a golden retriever and lab mix. And I love this dog, but I have to really hit myself sometimes because I think we have we have pets in order to dominate them. I, I think we, we, we have a need. Pets are like a toy to us which they wouldn't be if they could speak to us, if they could say, stop hollering at me, I didn't do anything, or change this food, it sucks, stop buying the cheapest food you can find, or how about a toy, which you haven't bought me in 10 years. The, the, we, would, we, we probably wouldn't have pets, or not nearly as many pets, if they could actually communicate with us. And yet people, people think they can communicate with their pets because they anthropomorphize, they communicate in the way they want to. They think their pet should be or is responding to them that satisfies this need in human beings. Mm. I think it's... I actually believe that even people who feel that they love animals, when they say, I have bonded to, to my pet or I've bonded to a wild species, you never bond with them. they're on a different they're they're on a different level th than we are not on a different level they're on a different plane of consciousness than we are they have compassion there are so many books out now about how animals truly do have there's proof that they have compassion and consciousness and wisdom well they they do in their own way but that's again all anthropomorphizing it's all things we want to see mm -hmm. they do have those they feel pain they have nerves and a brain acting in the same way humans do, but, but we'll never truly understand what they think or how they think. We just won't. And um, did you, the, the pets that you had as a kid, the green turtles and stuff, did you have those pets already or did you, did you get them or get your parents to get them so as you could have something you felt you, you could talk to? Yes, I got the, it was almost... Um, almost by luck, because they got me a pet. They would get me, I think, a hamster was the first thing. And I, and I realized I could talk. I could talk to the, to, to the hamster at, at, at a very young age. And, and then I asked for more things. I would buy a, a little green turtle for, for 25 cents, or I would go out in the lots nearby my house and actually find a garter snake and capture it and bring it back and and feed it and have it as a pet these pet i felt that they that they listened to me i mean i realized that the pets even as a youngster i knew that they didn't understand my words but i also realized that they could feel things they could feel the vibrations they could they could they could act in certain ways that showed me they were hearing that I was speaking mm. and they would act differently. Now, not all of them, different animals had different reactions. I didn't get a lot of reactions from my turtle, frankly, not any I could understand whether its head was outside the shell or inside the shell was the biggest thing. Um, but it, it, it was more about me, frankly, than the animals. You know, now I wouldn't think of bringing a garter snake out of the wild mm. and keeping it as a pet. And I don't even like things like hamsters or, or other turtles, which people would get tired of and flush down the toilet. Mm. That's that's the other thing we do with animals. We They don't have rights in our society, which shows how we really think of them. They have no legal rights. You could... You could euthanize an animal anytime you want. You can euthanize your pet whenever you want, as long as you find an accommodating vet 
that does it. Or you could kill your animal in your backyard. And there's no legal ramifications unless you abuse it. Yeah. Uh, we we think of them as a lesser form of life, actually. Yeah. And yeah. they're not. And they're not. And the thing that the thing that's so important that we don't realize, I'm not saying they're not just on a moral or spiritual level. What 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 most humans don't understand is what kind of intricate role that animals at all levels play in the maintenance of the system which provides our own health and well-being in this world. Right, yeah. So this is jumping jumping ahead slightly to a later question that I that I wanted to ask you, but um I've heard you say before that um big cats can help to prevent diseases like I think you use Ebola as an example and I'm just interested in the connection between big cats and those types of diseases and what their function is in that in that okay big cats and 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 it's not only big cats it's what we call the apex predators it's Mm. which big cats are the are the archetypal apex predator the true carnivore um the apex predator controls numbers bursts of the animal it's at the top of the food chain so let's take a simple example sars outbreak in China, one of the one of the sources of it were all these people bringing in civets. Civets is like a raccoon-like animal that we that's a that's the equivalent of say a raccoon in the United States. It's an Asian species. Mm. Well, in the normal environment, we where you have abundant apex predators, leopards and tigers, and uh, Wolves, in some cases, well, not wolves, uh, foxes. Mm. You, the apex predators keep down, keep the numbers of lesser carnivores, lesser animals in control. Smaller, smaller predators, smaller animals like the civet, like the raccoon in the United States, they're called mesocarnivores. They're they're medium-sized carnivores, medium-sized animals occupying that middle level between on the ground and what's above it the apex predators at the top of the food web at the keep everything else in control you can you can take away an apex predator and the pyramid is not going to collapse necessarily but it's going to rearrange itself when you don't have the the apex predator keeping in in control what's below it what it feeds on whether it's deer or mesocarnivores then then they just burst. Then they they start reproducing more. There are many more individuals, and things that that they carry, or that they're they're part of the host for, like deer's involvement in Lyme disease, rodents' involvement in Lyme disease, civets' involvement in SARS, uh, primates, monkeys' involvement in Ebola. Uh, the the those those other animals which are kept in check by the larger animals. And, and it's not always because they're preyed upon. It's also because they don't have behaviors that let them get out of control or take over an environment when a larger predator is stalking around all the time. So it controls the, the environment by its nature, by it being there, and by what it feeds upon. So diseases... All these zoonotics, most of the emerging and re-emerging diseases that we're really getting worried about and just keep on popping up, most of them, over 75% of them are called zoonotic, meaning that there's an animal host. There's an animal involved in the transmission of that disease somehow. Mm. And these zoonotic diseases are not new. They're not, they've been in the environment, AIDS, HIV, it's been in the environment for generations, for hundreds or thousands of years. But they're emerge but they've been kept in check. They've been kept in check by the firewall of good of good healthy habitats and, and ecosystems. Uh, the, the way I usually explain it is that everybody knows what a firewall does on a computer. If you have no firewall, no antivirus protection, nothing 
you will absolutely 100% eventually be getting a virus that's going to do damage or make your computer sick. Absolutely, because there's so much out there. That's what the natural environment does for you, has been doing throughout the origin of mankind for human beings. It's been keeping all these and all these bad diseases, whether it's viral or bacterial, in check with human beings. Yeah. If, if you were to kill all the animals, because some people say, well, if SARS is carried by civets, if if Lyme disease is by rodents and deer, then what about if we wipe them all out? Well, well, that's it's actually a fair question, but any. Any infectious disease doctor will tell you what what will happen. That won't kill a virus. That'll just take away that immediate host, and it'll jump straight over into human beings. Yeah, it'll evolve to something else. Lyme, right. Lyme disease is a good example because in the UK we have a problem with with deer and Lyme disease. We're pretty lucky that we don't have any more of the serious diseases. But we're a country where we've pretty much, over the past few hundred years, managed to wipe out all of our apex predators. Um, and there are currently proposals by some people to reintroduce the Eurasian lynx, which used to be native to this country, but was was completely wiped out. But um, I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on something that happened in the past couple of days. A Eurasian lynx escaped from a, a zoo or a wildlife sanctuary in Wales, and after a week or two was shot by someone just a couple of days ago because the local council decided that there was too much of a threat to quote-unquote public safety. Now, there's no recorded case of a lynx actually attacking or hurting a human being, but do you think there's, do you think there's an innate kind of fear of big cats, maybe, maybe that's particular to Western societies, or do you think it's more, that's more of an excuse because people are worried about their economic interests, you know, whether reintroduced lynx could, could start taking livestock, or what, what's your view on that? Well, I think people do fear re reintroduced reintroduction of big cats. People economically fear the 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 conflict, the predation with livestock. I mean, lynx would probably have have an effect on the smaller things, on the chickens, or or I don't know what 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 smaller li livestock you've got. It is absolutely no threat to a human being. Mm. Absolutely. I wouldn't even think it's a threat. I mean, there's always that chance that some starving link comes upon a newborn and bites into it. But that that kind of threat is almost non-existent also, unless somebody leaves their newborn out in the wild, in which case a lot of things can come and bite it. Um, there's no I think it's more there is a there is a fear of cats, which is interesting. I, I don't think it's innate. I think a fear of snakes is innate out of out of needing to to survive. So you, if you don't know if a snake is deadly or poisonous, you're you're afraid of snakes in general. Yeah. But the but the fear of cats, no, because people early early in man existence, the early human beings, the early Homo sapiens scavenge off of cat kills. You you use cats as an indirect, as a surrogate hunter for it, and and actually scavenge its, its, its kills. We respect cats so much that the greatest martial arts have forms related to how cats attack and kill. We've, we've patterned weapons after cats' claws and cats' canines. All ancient cultures have have made gods out of the big cats. In fact, even modern day cultures, cultures like in the Sundarbans in Bangladesh, there are still tiger god gods back in the swamps, in the uh, in the mangroves. Mm. So, I but I do think that that there's a fear of of a cat. There's a fear of any animal that is more powerful. Or more vicious than a human being. Lynx is really, I mean, lynx can be very powerful. Lynx could really do damage to a human being, but we're not even anywhere close to its to its search image for for what it would try to attack. Um, I think we we mainly are are afraid of what we can't always control, and big cats fall into that into that category. 
that we can't totally control them. And it's when we, we think we can totally control them, even in circus acts, like happened with, with Siegfried and Royd in Las Vegas with their tiger. You know, these are animals which have become almost pets. But people, again, think of them as toys. People don't understand animals have a bad day. Animals have toothaches. Animals have headaches. Animals get angry, even at somebody they love. So any time an animal can, can lash out and cause damage to us. And often people get, get killed or because they don't consider that. They think they've bonded to a wild, wild animal. Yeah. But I, I, I do think, I, I think it would be a great idea to reintroduce lynx. In, into areas where they existed before. I think there would be less rodent problems. I mean, you would, all it would mean on the human side is that people with certain kinds of livestock would now just have to do husbandry a certain way, maybe a little more inconvenient than, than it was before. Because people live with jaguar, people, people have livestock, the, the biggest livestock countries in the world, like like India and Brazil have jaguars and tigers and leopards and and they li live with it because there are there's still conflict that occurs but but there's also known husbandry practices where you can avoid that conflict because healthy wild cats usually want to take wild prey yeah and they don't bother people yeah the instances of that, of of big cats killing or attacking people it occurs because there's always anomalous living things, but it's minor. So this was this was there. one of the things that I wanted to ask. Well, there's so many questions that I want to ask you. I'm definitely not going to get through all of them. But um, one of the one of the most innovative elements of the conservation approach that you've taken um, in your career, and um, I've, I've been reading well, I've been reading both your book, The Jaguar, but also Life in the Valley of Death, and um, in Life in the Valley of Death, which is almost more about the the strategy and the people than it is about the wildlife itself, um, the the approach that you take is very much to make sure that people and benefits to people are part of the conservation of the tiger in that story, right? That is right, and 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 I didn't always think that way, and it does, and I don't think like many other people or or social anthropologists often think that in order to save wildlife just just take care of the people and they'll protect wildlife because that's not true mm. i mean anybody can say they want that to be true but it just isn't true whether i want it or not uh it it took me about 10 years of working in in the field it's it's funny because numerous one of the only criticisms i've had of my books is that some people justifiably say for certain books that they expected more about wildlife and less about people oh it's not it's not a criticism of my no part. no but but i'm saying i'm i'm just yeah. using it as a as a jumping off point of what you've said because yeah. it, it's very it, it it's it's what i do now it's it's the way i write because what i have realized after decades in the field and as i said it took me about 10 years in the field where I was trained in a way that tr traditional wildlife conservation or management was that you lock away animals and protect them, keep people out, people on one side, animals on another. What I realized was that's not really what's saving the world. That's not what's saving wildlife at a scale that wildlife should be saved. And that the only scale that is appropriate with corridors and movement pathways is that wildlife lives with people mm. that the species live now that doesn't mean the wildlife has to ha ha have its home which are protected areas just as people have to have their their own house their own abode someplace that's their special place where they can breed and breed in privacy 
Well, animals need the same thing. But then outside of those areas, unless we just want mega zoos, what we think of as like like has happened in many parts of India with the tigers, you know, a nice protected, a, a, a postage stamp protected area where there are wild animals in there, but but they're surrounded by a sea of humanity and they can't really go anywhere without being killed or captured. It, unless that's all we want in the future, then what we have to do now is, is figure out how outside of the boundaries of people's cities, urban areas, outside of the animals, strictly protected areas, how can people and wildlife live together? Now, it's a lot easier for some species than others. It's actually not hard to show how big cats and people can live together. It's much harder, I have to tell you. I'm, I'm almost glad I don't work on trying to save the world's last rhinos and elephants because those animals can't really sneak by, sneak through the human environment without causing damage. Yeah. I mean, there are certain animals that probably will have to be protected with in, in large protected areas or even possibly with fencing or with moats or something if we want to save them for the future. Not everything is going to be able to go back in time to what its early patterns of behavior were. But the big cats can. The big cats have migratory routes where they can go through the human landscape. We've shown that with jaguars. We now see it even in India, even in the world's most populated nation in central India, these tigers are, are moving out of protected areas and they're moving along waterways, sneaking through the human landscape, something which I called with jaguars the underground railway, referring to what was in the United States during the Civil War for escaped slaves, so that you could, you could sneak through without anybody ever having known you were there. And in parts of tiger range, in parts of jaguar range, I can find people who say, well, there are no tigers around here. They're, the nearest place is such and such park. Uh, there are no jaguars here. And we know for a fact from our camera traps that there are tigers and jaguars moving through that person's land. But they have no idea of it because they don't cause damage and they just are trying to get from one breeding area to another breeding area. Well, you, you, um, you write yourself on one of the... You know, you're very good at writing about kind of, well, you're very good at creating a sense of long-term suspense. So there's this, this kind of long-term suspense that builds out, builds up throughout life in the valley of death over whether or not you're going to achieve achieve what you're trying to achieve in uh, in Burma, um, as it was called at the time you were working there. Um, but you're also great at building these kinds of moments of suspense. And one of the things that you describe really beautifully is walking... I think walking through the jungle. Um, maybe I'm remembering this from your book about jaguars. Actually, you'll you'll have to correct me. Um, but having a big cat walking near you and you not even realizing it's there, and then there's one way you think that you're following it, and then you realize that actually it's been following you. Okay, actually, that covers both books. In the, right. <laughs> in the, I, I I was there have been at least two times where I was walking in the jungle and there was a there was a tiger walking also in the jungle parallel to me and I actually didn't realize it until we crossed path one of one time I actually saw it and once I didn't even see it across in back of me and I only saw its tracks coming back and then followed it into the jungle and it had been walking parallel to me at the same time but the other time was with a jaguar when I was following its tracks it was fresh tracks into the jungle and I was hoping Although I knew the chances were slim, I was hoping I might catch a glimpse of it or see it. And it was getting dark, and I finally decided to turn around because I didn't have a flashlight. And there was the jaguar in back of me. It had circled around. I, I had lost its tracks for about the last half hour. Usually it goes in the jungle and comes back out. So I was trying to regain its tracks, but there were no regaining its tracks. It had circled around and was in back of me. And... It was it was a shocking time. I mean, I just turned around and there was a jaguar, and it was a strange mix of both fear, total fear, because even though I knew that 
90% chance this Jaguar was not going to hurt me because it could have killed me at any time. But you're still faced, just like we were talking about with people's fear. I'm face-to-face with this animal that is much stronger than me, can kill me easily. There's no way I'm running from it, and there's no way I'm winning a fight with it. And I have no gun, no, nothing. I mean, even if I did, it could kill me while while it was dying. Um, so, so there was absolute fear, but there was also this incredible feeling that this is what my whole life has been working towards. This was the closest and most intimate I had ever gotten with a wild jaguar, which I had been following and studying for years. And this was a moment of it just knowing me, figuring out why I was following it, and now I was staring right at it. Its eyes were just locked on mine. So I did, I mean, this Jaguar, I was a little worried because I couldn't even start backing up because I could back up for a while, but that was back into the jungle. This Jaguar was now blocking my way back to camp, and I was blocking this Jaguar's access back into, into its jungle home. So I just did what you often do with with primates or some other animals. I, I may I try to make myself subdominant, as 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 un as unaggressive appearing as possible by squatting down. Yeah. So I I realized looking at it didn't matter. I knew that staring at it in the eye wasn't an aggressive act. So I kept I kept looking at it, but I but I would squat it down fairly low, about at the same level as the jaguar. And then the jaguar just sat down. <laughs> it was the most bizarre thing. I mean, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if the jaguar would leap at me or just turn around. I mean, I was hoping it would turn around and walk away. Yeah. I wasn't planning on having some kind of spiritual engagement with this animal. <laughs> and, and, and it just sat down and just stared at me. It didn't look like it was afraid. It wasn't afraid. It wasn't waiting. It just say, it seemed like, okay. Let's sit down. I, I can't read it. I don't want to do exactly what I get on people about doing, which is anthropomorphizing. I have no idea what was going on in this jaguar's head. All I knew is that I shouldn't show too much blatant fear because fear can be sensed. Fear, that, that kind of fear. could, And I shouldn't run away because that, that could trigger the prey response in the jaguar in order to chase me. So after it sat down, I stood up and I started stepping backwards, looking at the Jaguar, just hoping if I, maybe my space was too much, the, the personal space. And I thought, let me widen our personal space and maybe it'll walk away. So I'm stepping back about four steps and I trip on, on some kind of tree root. And I trip and I'm on my back like a turtle. And I just figured, okay, well, if the Jaguar ever wanted an opportunity for me to act like a like an incompetent prey species, now is, <laughs> now is the time. And the Jaguar, and I, and I got up expecting it to, to like be charging right at me. But it got up and it just walked towards the forest. It stopped at the edge, looked back at me, and just walked into the forest. And I, I was both, I, I knew all danger was over, but yet I was shaking from both a combination of fear and just this awesome feeling that a gift had been given to me, an, an incredible gift that somehow started at the zoo when I would look through through the bars mm. at these animals and, and just wish that they would be free. Because this animal had total domination over me and that's where they should be yeah i've had the same feeling i've had a similar feeling myself when yeah encountering big male orangutans in the jungle and there was one particular Ooh. moment where i was caught between two converging huge male orangutans uh and felt the same fear although failed to well Given that there were two male orangutans coming together, I think crouching down and making myself as as uh, submissive as possible may not have worked. So I quickly got out of their way and moved off to the side. But yeah, you witness something amazing at the same time as feeling absolutely terrified. Yeah, and I was planning. I didn't know, you know, with jaguars, they can work e- either way. They, they don't like unexpected things. They don't like 
So so if it had started, I was I I had already had plans after squatting down. If it had started walking towards me or coming at me, I was gonna leap up and throw my pack at it and throw everything at it. Because not that that would have stopped it if it wanted to kill me, but I knew knew it didn't want to kill me. It, that would have just thrown enough weirdness into the situation where it just wouldn't have. J- Jaguars, Jaguars don't want to deal with things they can't figure out. So that's why you can actually stop a Jaguar from, from killing cattle just by putting a light bulb on over your your cattle corral. Not, not because a jaguar still can't come in and kill the cattle, but it just it brings them out into, into the open, and, and they don't like that. So it'll just go away and prey on wild prey. Yeah. So I was going to make myself crazy and huge and, and try something like the, 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 in martial arts, it's called the drunken master technique. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wanted to ask as well, because you, from, from what I've read in your books, working out, keeping in good physical shape is something that's always been quite important to you, right? That yes, must, my must father help with your work me. as well. Oh, it does tremendously. It helps with my work. I don't think I could keep on doing what I'm doing now at 64 if I, if I didn't do that. Um, I mean, age is catching up to me, but I still have the the things I have I can't control like the leukemia and that kind of thing but I but but I stay in good physical shape because you just need to you need to to hike mountains and I need to sometimes just to deal with human beings frankly um, that's never a far cry from the the world of people and the world of animals truly o- overlaps I went to the world of animals in order to escape the world of people. And now I realize that if I want to save wildlife, I've got to immerse myself in the world of people. Mm. And it's encounters like that one with the Jaguar that have earned you kind of, you've, you've been dubbed by others, the Indiana Jones of conservation. Um, but I wanted to ask how, how would you like to be remembered in I don't yeah. know, say 50 years time or a hundred years time when people are reading and learning about your work? Yeah, not as that actually, and 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 in fact, it wasn't people. It was the reason it 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 stuck with, with me is because it was Time Magazine. Yeah. So Time Magazine <laughs> did it, and it kind of stuck. Um, but that's not, you know. This is going to sound weird, but but it's the way I actually feel. I feel like the best success I can have with things I've done and set up especially is if I'm not remembered especially in the areas for it where the Jaguar Preserve just setting up a protected area doesn't win you the hearts and minds of the local people the local people have to have to gain ownership of it have to really feel like like they're not only vested in it but they're proud to be a part of this proud to be actually running camera traps. These these pictures of tigers or jaguars or leopards, which they now take with camera traps, it's their jaguars, it's their leopards. That's what they have to feel. And people do feel this. The, 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 the turning point, the tipping point I saw in the re- first reserve I ever set up, Coxcomb Basin as a jaguar preserve, was when the Mayan Indians living there did revisionism history change the story and were telling tourists about how they they i mean a lot of tourists had come in and know my name having read the book and they'd mention me and say oh yeah alan came and studied them they don't they they don't denigrate anything i do but they have revised the story to where they were with me and they were a key part of helping me save and set up that area when in fact it's really them. I had to fight the whole way, <laughs> but they're saving it now. But but that became that's. I was thrilled when that happened. When when I became a minor player and they became the the major player, who the tourists wanted to see. They wanted to see the Mayans guarding this area. They wanted to talk to to the Mayans about their ancestry, which frankly they didn't even know about when I was first there. Now they've relearned. They they had a pride in it when. When my name was barely mentioned is when that area became 
more successful. And that was one of the reasons that drives me. It's a major reason that drives me to writing my books. I've written everything I've done down in books so I can have my, my children and my children's children and future generations know intellectually, know from books what I've done. Mm. But in the field, in the field, I don't want to be remembered. I want, every, I want the people who actually have to live with these animals, have to sacrifice by living w with these animals. They should be taking full credit for it. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, and obviously people should read your books because there's a lot of stuff that I haven't had the time to explore, but I think one of the things that you convey most powerfully is about winning over the hearts and minds of of people who might at first be pretty sceptical about what you're proposing in, in their countries and their communities to being your allies and to supporting the work that you do. Um, More than sceptical, they're actually often very angry. Yeah. I mean, who am yeah. I? These are, these are poor, and justifiably, these are poor people. Yeah. You know, they're not, they're not, they're not killing a tiger in order to buy a mansion or, 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 or buy a Lamborghini. They're killing a tiger so that they can have, have a dowry for their daughter to, to marry a decent guy or to get a, get a shopping stall in the marketplace. Or they're killing a jaguar so that they can build a, build a toilet in their, outside their thatched hut. So so I don't I don't fault that, and they're angry at me. Who am I, this rich by their standards, rich rich white person coming in from a rich country and saying what they should or shouldn't be doing, or moving them because of the gun, or convincing government to be shifting them? The only time, the way I win them over is when I live with them, when I get sick with them. When, I, when they actually see that given that I don't have to be doing this and my, I'm really putting my life and well-being on the line to be doing it, they come to respect me before they respect the animal. They, they start respecting what I'm doing by respecting me. Mm. And that I have found to be the key. Um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to ask as well... Um, a lot of my work over the past decade has been with young people and um, helping that young people who are interested in wildlife and helping them to connect with each other. So I mean, sort of, you know, teenagers and twenty-somethings, um, and a lot of a lot of them, a lot of my peers and my friends are doing zoology or conservation degrees right now, or well, they're very early in their conservation career. And looking at looking at you and reading your book, some of the things that you've achieved sort of make you appear kind of almost superhuman in conservation terms, but. Were there kind of was there a lot of trial and error, or and I don't know, maybe I'll throw the word failures in there before those big successes happened? And <laughs> you know, can can some of my peers and friends look at what you've achieved and think, yeah, one day I can I can do that if I'm willing to put if I'm willing to not be too afraid to fail, I guess. You're not kidding. It's all trial and error. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's the, there's still. And, and when I say it's all trial and error, of course, I'm not talking about sh we've gotten better technologies and better techniques. And there are some really good now set ways of how you I mean, back when when I was drugging jaguars or drugging leopards, you know, we didn't even have a vet with us, which was terrible. Animals would, die, you know, I would be the one having to learn by myself how, how much drug to use, how to monitor its heart rate or respiration, which was interesting to me. But consequently, where animals died, not just with me, but, but with with other scientists. Now, that kind of trial and error has been taken out, should be taken out, because now I don't know, know of any reputable scientist who would go out, and they aren't usually allowed to by the country, go out and drug, a, drug an animal and not have a vet with them who knows really what they're doing. But But the trial and error is more on the human level. The trial and error is how, how do I how do I accomplish the bigger goal? It's not it it's not so much trial and error to set up a research project and to know that even though there'll be some setbacks, you will get research which will give you a master's or a PhD. That's not trial and error. The trial and error is when you go beyond that. When you say now how can I use this data? How, how can I really accomplish something of conservation value 
be it with the government, with the local communities, with the indigenous people. Usually it's all of them. It's all three wrapped up. How do, I, how, how do I work this? How do I do it so it's sustainable? Because it's even easy. I would say, while it's not easy, you can often find the route to get to a government and convince them that some incredibly beautiful area should be protected. Even that's hard, but that's doable. What is the hardest is figuring out is, first of all, having the realization, which not enough people have, that you're not doing this for now. You're not doing it for the accolades, and you're not doing it for, wow, we now have a new national park. You're doing it to figure out how can these animals survive sustainably, indefinitely into the future, even in the face of climate change, even in the face of growing population, even in the face of growing land use for development, even in the face of emerging diseases. How can I best set this up? You can't guarantee everything and you can't predict the future, but how, how can I best set this up, which involves maybe not just a protected area now, but, but uh, corridors, corridors moving, thinking about the ecological unit you want to be working on versus just the, the biological unit you're, you've done your, your research in. How can you be setting it up so that the people benefit from it and, and take ownership of it and the wildlife can, can survive long into the future, even in the face of changing environmental variables, which is what involves corridors, so that they can move the way people would move. You're not going to stop climate change. You're not going to stop environmental perturbations, whether they're man-made or not. What you have to do is what the animals did in the Pleistocene that survived. You have to give them the ability to leave, to move, to shift, to go to where it's safe, just as human beings do. So that's what you have to, that's the challenge. That's the challenge that has never gotten easier for, for me. Every time I go into a new situation, a new country, I still have to face completely new, my outcome is still set, but, but I have to face completely new variables in terms of the politics. I mean, I've worked with communist governments, socialist governments, democracies. The toughest one is a democracy, frankly. <laughs> That's been the <laughs> toughest kind of government to do conservation in. But um, it's, I think the most exciting thing, there's, there's so much in the world for, for young people to still do. And our knowledge has advanced to a point, I mean, there are factors going against them too, because now everything has to be, everything is political correctness and what can you touch or not touch or work on. When I first went to Belize and I went to the government, to the Department of Forestry, to, to the chief forestry officer and said, I want to work on Jaguars, and I was expecting to have to fill in permits. This was back in 1982. And the chief forest officer said to me, so what? So what are you coming to me about? What do you, what do you want from me? It's like, you want to catch Jaguars? Go out and catch Jaguars. People are, people are killing them if you want to catch them and put a radio on them, then, then just go do it. Well, that kind of thing. I was able to be part of with my writing that maybe people – do the Indiana Jones with this. It was a different time too. Not that many people were into, there weren't words like ecotourism or, or biological conservation or biophilia. Those weren't even in the, conservation wasn't even thing. We were doing science. So I was able to be more of a cowboy, more of a maverick. And it wasn't always good. You know, it caused injury to myself and to some animals. But I was able to just push ahead with a determination. Things have gotten harder in that way, but what can't change is the determination. You can always push ahead. You have to push through more bureaucracy, more paperwork, more government, but if you're passionate and if you've got that determination, there is so much in the world to save. I think you've moved me on very nicely to what I'll make my final question, if that's okay. So Absolutely. Um, in again in life, uh, life in the Valley of Death, you write um, 
I think it was around the time you were expecting the birth of your second child in 2001 or 2002, you, you write a beautiful line, which is that bringing a child into the world and saving big cats are two sides of the same coin, the fight of life against death. So I wanted to ask, just to close, what, what's next for you in this fight? What are you going to be working on next? And what are your hopes for, for that fight? What are your hopes for the future of big cats? Well, I decided to take on what could well be. I mean, I hope it's not, but I think it will be my last really big, big endeavor, which is which is both physically difficult, politically difficult, but it's working. And it's called Journey of the Jaguar. And and it's a four year endeavor, which already right now I'm finishing my first year having been through Brazil. What it is, is a walk where it's not just walking, where we're, we're walking, go, going on ATVs, horseback, by boat. It's, it's a journey through the genetic corridor from Mexico to Argentina. We can't do all 18 countries. The Jaguar Corridor goes through 18 countries yeah. of two continents. This is the spine the, of the Jaguar Corridor, which is 10 countries, all of Central America, and then going into Colombia and Brazil and Northern Argentina. So it's 10 countries of walking through, not all at once, of course, I can't do that a, a, anymore and do other things, but walking, going at, about every month, and then we come back and rest about two weeks. This We, we go to a different country that we've mapped out the, the, the most unknown or most endangered parts of the Jaguar corridor, and we go down into them. And we've done that, when I say we, I'm working with Dr. Howard Quigley, who runs my Jaguar conservation program for Panthera, mm -hmm. who he and I worked on Jaguars since the early 1980s. We have a combined 60 years of experience, which is pretty sad. <laughs> so we're walking, and, and I've already, as I said, we've already done Mexico, uh, Honduras, Brazil, part of Brazil, and Colombia. We need to go back to those countries, but, but this year is going to be Suriname with the Jaguar trade, Nicaragua, Nicaragua uh, I think back to Brazil and, and back to Colombia and maybe a couple of other countries. This is all... All our adventures, we're trying to get it out on social media as well as establish a live platform that will keep on going beyond the Jaguar journey indefinitely so that people who are really interested, people who might not, you know, we've got to reach more people than these nature documentaries. I'm not keen on nature documentaries. I, I don't think they win over anybody beyond the already won over. I, we, we need to reach greater numbers. We need to, to, to incentivize the young people who might have a seed planted or might have that passion that you were talking about. So we're doing it with this new website called www.journeyofthejaguar.org. You could go on now and see incredible videos, see blogs of, of, of me in these different countries and what we're doing. To do these 10 countries, everything we want to do, and ending up, we started on the Arizona-Mexico border with the U.S. Jaguar. We're going to end in northern Argentina, where people are trying to reintroduce Jaguars. It'll take almost four years, and I, I just hope I can get through it, because it's difficult. I already ended up in the first year... I ended up in a Mexican hospital for a month. Oh, man. With first, yeah, first with with appendicitis, which was normal. That was nobody's fault. But the doctors messed up the appendicitis, oh. and my lungs filled with fluid, and I got pneumonia. And that's what made me stay. I had to fly back to New York with an oxygen tank and in a wheelchair and all the, this. The disease, the... It, it takes a lot doing because we're in the jungle, we're walking, we're going, we're visiting indigenous groups, we're, we're trying to meet the government and trying to get new protected areas. So this journey of the Jaguar, I'm almost coming back to my roots because I started out with the Jaguar. I'm still working to protect tigers and lions and leopards and tigers especially, but the Jaguars are my heart and that's where I think, I don't think after four years, I'm going to be in enough shape to do much more like this, like that anymore. 
Yeah, you're pushing it pretty hard. It's really impressive. <laughs> uh, it's not. It's just you know, it's not. It's not a. I I try to stay home, but when I stay home, as much as I love my family, I try to stay home, and I can't do it. <laughs> I can't. I become restless. I become lazy. I've got to be be out in the field. Yeah, itchy feet. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that's fantastic, Doctor Rubinier. Thank you so much. It's been such an honor to speak to you having you know followed your work for a few years now that was that was really great thank you is there anything that you wanted to say that i haven't asked you about no you covered a lot i'm sorry if i talked too much at any one time you've got to learn how to interrupt me (laughs) (laughs) well it's just so great to listen to i'm sure people will love listening to it uh that it's yeah that it's difficult to interrupt so no thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me oh it's my pleasure good luck and, and let us know when it's going to be on I will. If you're able to share it, I'd be really grateful. I'll send you a link. Absolutely, I'll show it. I'll put it on my websites. Thank you so much. All right, take care and have a good rest of your day. Same to to you, and I'm glad we figured out this computer thing. (laughs) Yeah, me too. All right, take care. All right, bye. Bye.